1 Corinthians chapter 10. I won't read it because we already read it for our call to worship. But as you're turning there, we often find history boring. And we often find warnings to be annoying. We can find history boring because we struggle to see the relevance between what happened hundreds of years ago and what is happening in my life right now. For example, what do I care about some odd-looking bearded guy in a stovepipe hat who gave some speech hundreds of years ago called the Emancipation Proclamation? And when it comes to warnings, we can find them annoying because they often prevent us from doing something we want to do. Like when I'm at the zoo, how is it that I can't dangle my son over the brown bear enclosure? I paid good money to see that brown bear. Why can't I put my son over the fence so he can get a good look at that thing? Such boredom and such annoyance shows our ignorance, our unawareness. Because if we really understood the importance of such things, we would find our boredom transformed into deep interest. And we would find our annoyance changed into great appreciation. Oh, that weird-looking guy, he was Abraham Lincoln. He was instrumental in preventing the country I live in from falling apart, and he helped bring an end to slavery. I guess I should pay attention so that our nation doesn't reach such an existential crisis again. Oh, you mean brown bears aren't just giant teddy bears and that they can actually kill people? You know, I quite like that sign that discourages me from dangling my son over the killer bear enclosure. When we think we know it all and we feel that we don't need to trouble ourselves with dusty old books or lectures on how dangerous certain activities are, we show that we're actually profoundly and dangerously ignorant. And that was the Corinthians. They thought they knew everything, and they were very proud about it. And we can often find ourselves in that boat as well. As Christians, we have a spiritual heritage, a spiritual history, and we have in this book called the Bible spiritual warnings that are given to us. And if we ignore that history, and if we ignore those warnings, we do so at our own peril. In our passage this morning, we're going to see three truths that are wrapped in history and wrapped in caution. Three truths that will protect us from the ignorance that leads to destruction. And that first truth that we find, we see in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, and it's beginning is not winning. That's the truth. Beginning the race is not the same thing as winning the race. Beginning a journey is not the same thing as finishing the journey. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10. He begins, Paul, by saying, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. What's the first word there? For. That tells us that Paul is explaining what he's just said back in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Let me read those verses for us again in case we've forgotten. Verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 25, Now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control 
in all things. Paul's going to show us that the Israelites did not exercise self-control in all things. He's going to show us that though all of those Israelites began that journey, not all of them ran to the very end. Not all of them won. Not all of them exercised faith in God to the very end. And then in verses 26 and 27, Paul demonstrates how he himself is running this race, how he himself is persevering in the faith. He says in chapter 9, 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. As we saw in chapter 8, these Corinthians, just like the Israelites, these Corinthians began to play fast and loose with idolatry. They began either dining in or considering dining in idol temples, which would have been a big part of their life before Christ. And they've shown little concern for the impact that that behavior might have on weaker brothers and sisters in the faith. And Paul is letting them know as he did at the end of chapter 9, and as he continues to do in this chapter, that if they continue on like this, they are going to end up disqualifying themselves from the race of faith. They're going to lose their incorruptible crowns. And these Corinthians, they seem to be unaware of this. They seem to be unaware that beginning a race, beginning a journey, is not the same thing as winning it. You've got to run to the end, to the very end. And so Paul, he seeks to anchor what he said at the end of chapter 9. He seeks to anchor that in historical reality. That these aren't just empty threats. He's saying that this movie has played before. And you need to pay attention to it. Paul says in verse 1 that our fathers, again speaking of that spiritual heritage we have, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul goes back to the time of the Exodus, and in looking at that history, he sees a parallel. He sees an analogy between the Israelites of the Exodus and these Corinthian believers to whom he's writing. And these Corinthians need to pay close attention here because the God who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt is the same God who has delivered them from their sin and from the coming wrath of God. It's the same God, and that God does not change. So they need to pay attention. Paul points out that all the Israelites were under the cloud. All the Israelites passed through the sea. All the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We know that history well, most of us, if not all of us. God led those Israelites out of Egypt where they were slaves for hundreds of years. And when he brought them out, he was leading them by a pillar of cloud. And when those Egyptians realized, wow, we just lost our entire workforce, they regretted letting those Israelites go. And they pursued them and they cornered them at the sea. And God took that pillar of cloud and put it behind them as a rear guard to protect them from those Egyptians. And then God split the waters of that sea that they were trapped before so that they could pass through it between walls of water and walking on dry ground. 
And the man that God raised up to lead them, that was the man named Moses. And Paul says they were all baptized into Moses. When the people followed Moses through that sea, they identified themselves with Moses. That's what baptism is, an identification with someone. That was the beginning of their race, their journey. Look with me at, back at Exodus chapter 14. I want you to see in the scriptures how they identified themselves with Moses, how they were, in a sense, baptized into the name of Moses. Look at Exodus chapter 14, at the very end of the chapter, verse 31. This is after God has brought them through the Red Sea and drowned all the Egyptians who followed them. It says, Then Israel saw the great hand which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord, Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. They identified with this man that God used to lead them. That was the beginning of their journey. Do you see the similarity there between how the Israelites began their journey and how we as believers begin the race of faith? As Christians, our race, our journey began with God delivering us from the slavery to our sin and from the slavery of the fear of God's coming wrath. And as believers, what was one of the first steps we took in obeying the Lord? Baptism. Identifying publicly ourselves with Jesus Christ, the, our leader, the one who had delivered us. Through baptism, we identified ourselves with him. That's how we began our journey. In verse 3, keep your finger in Exodus, but 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3 Paul says that all these Israelites ate the same spiritual food. Now, what does he mean by spiritual? Was it, does it mean that that manna that they were eating had no physical substance? No, when he says spiritual, he's referring to the origin of this food, where it came from, that it was miraculously provided. If you're still in Exodus, look at chapter 16 and verse 4. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. And then verse 14. Then the layer of dew evaporated, and behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And then verse 35. And the sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years. God provided this manna every day of each of those 40 years that the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, they all ate the same spiritual food. He also says, again, keeping your finger in Exodus, but looking at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, he says they all drank the same spiritual drink. Turn to Exodus chapter 17. When the people reached a point in their journey 
where there was no water to drink, God miraculously provided for them by causing water to spring forth from a rock. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin according to the command of Yahweh. And they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? So Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. You can let go of Exodus now. Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 10 that all drank the same spiritual, the miraculously provided drink. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now what does he mean by that? I won't spend too much time on this because it would divert us from the main point of the passage, but what does Paul mean that this rock was Christ? Is he saying that this literal rock out of which water flowed was literally following them around through the wilderness those 40 years? Is he saying that Jesus took the form of a rock? I suppose that's possible. I may be wrong, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I don't think that's what he's saying. Certainly that literal rock was a great picture, illustration of Jesus. Paul smote that rock and life-giving water came out. Our Lord was smitten on the cross and out of his body flowed blood and water, purchasing our redemption. So certainly it's a great illustration of that, but I think Paul is referring back to the song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is a song that Moses sang at the end of those 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness as they're ready to enter the promised land. He recounts to them what God has done in song form. But I want you to notice how Moses refers to God repeatedly throughout this song. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. He says, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is their rock. Verse 12, Yahweh alone guided him and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth he ate the, and he ate the produce of the field and he, God, made him, Israel, suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. So their ultimate rock, who is God, provided water for them out of a literal rock. Look at verse 15. But Jeshurun, or Israel, 
grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, thick, and sleek. Then he abandoned God who made him and treated the rock of his salvation with wicked foolishness. And then lastly, verse 18. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who brought you forth. And throughout the Old Testament, you'll see the people of God referring to God as their rock. God was their rock. He was the one who followed them around and led them around the wilderness all those 40 years. He was their rock. He was the one upon whom they depended for their very lives day in and day out for every single one of those 40 years. He was the one who provided spiritual food, manna from heaven. This rock was the one who provided spiritual drink out of a literal rock. That rock gushing water in a barren wasteland was a great picture of their ultimate rock, God, who faithfully provided for their every need in the wilderness. And catch what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. He says, this rock was Christ. You see what what he's saying about Jesus. Jesus is the God who delivered his people out of Egypt. Jesus himself was the God sustaining them in the wilderness. The rock was Christ. Coming back to Paul's main point, notice in verses 3 and 4 the two actions that are highlighted there. Eating the spiritual food and drinking the spiritual drink. In verse 2, Paul already mentioned What ordinance, what church ordinance did Paul mention in verse 2? Baptism. What church ordinance does eating and drinking remind you of? The Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate it today. Paul, you see, is pointing out another parallel, another connection between Israel and these Corinthian believers. And we know the Lord's Supper is on his mind Because when we come to verses 14 to 22, he explicitly brings up the Lord's Supper. Those Israelites were sustained by God's provision for them in the wilderness through the spiritual food of manna and through the spiritual drink of water from a rock. And as believers, today we too are sustained by our rock, Christ himself. And we are reminded of his provision for us each time we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. When we eat the broken bread and we drink from the cup that symbolized how Christ sacrificed his body, how he spilled his blood to bring us life. As all the Israelites had been baptized, so all these Corinthian believers have been baptized. As all the Israelites ate the manna and drank the water, so all these Corinthian believers partake of the Lord's Supper when it is offered. Do you see the parallels there? Paul is pointing out that all the Israelites partook of God's sustaining presence. All of them. Not only that, but Paul is saying that the one who sustained them in the wilderness was Christ himself, the very same Christ who redeemed the Corinthians. But then notice what he says in verse 5. He says, Nevertheless, though they all were baptized, though they all ate and drank, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were struck down in the wilderness. 
All that first generation of Israelites, except for Joshua and Caleb, were struck down in the wilderness. They'd all been baptized into Moses as they followed him through the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, most of them, instead of entering the promised land, experienced the displeasure of God who caused the wilderness to be littered with their dead bodies. Though they all began the journey to the promised land, most of them did not enter. Do you see now the connection between chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, and chapter 10? In chapter 9, Paul said, In the race, all of them run, but only one wins. So run that you may win. Run it to the end. Persevere. The bad example is Israel, who did not persevere. When I was 14 years old, I got baptized. And I shouldn't have been baptized because the external profession I was making was not matched by an internal reality. And I remember that after I was baptized, I must have done something wrong. I was a jerk to my sisters or something, which I was all the time, because I remember my mom confronting me and saying, Josh, when someone's baptized, they're supposed to be different. And I was not different. There was no internal reality matching what the profession that I had made. My baptism didn't amount to a hill of beans. It was worthless. It meant nothing because there was no truth in my heart that matched what I had testified. Paul in chapter 10, he's showing these believers that this is what happens when you don't run the race to the end. This is what happens when you don't exercise self-control in all things, when you don't persevere in the faith. And he's saying that just because you began the race of faith, just because you've been baptized, just because you partake of the Lord's Supper, that in itself is not the same thing as finishing and winning the race of faith. When the Israelites got to that promised land and they sent 12 spies to scope it out and to bring back a report The time had come for them to enter into the land and take it. But they were ultimately barred entry. At first they refused to go because they were scared, and then they regretted their decision to refuse to go in, and God said, no, I'm not going to give it to you, and they were slaughtered by the people. But what was the ultimate reason they were barred entry to the promised land? Was it because they'd not gone through the sea? No, they all did. Was it because they didn't eat the manna or drink the spiritual drink? No, they all were doing that. It was because they did not trust in the Lord. And when we die and we stand before the Lord, the question will not be, were you baptized? The question will not be, did you partake of the Lord's Supper? The question will be, did you entrust yourself to my son to the end? That's the question. Do I trust him? Do I trust Jesus? So beginning is not winning. That's a truth we need to take note of. You've got to run the race to the end. You've got to believe to the end. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it never stops being that way. Keep believing. That brings us to the second truth that we find in 
verses 6 through 11. The second truth is this, that ignoring, ignoring history, ignoring warnings, ignoring leads to sinning. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to what? Repeat it. Verse 6, Paul says, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Though God had rescued the Israelites from Egypt, though he had performed incredible miracles in order to deliver them from Egypt, like splitting the sea, bringing them through it on dry ground, these people craved evil things, and they died in the wilderness. And Paul is saying to these Corinthians that in God's providence, those things happened to the Israelites as examples for you and I to learn from so that we would not crave evil things as they craved, that we would avoid the same fate as them, that we would enter the very land that they failed to enter. And in verses 7 through 10, Paul lays this out very practically, very clearly for us. He goes step by step through how these Israelites craved evil things and what the consequence was for craving evil things. And he's saying, don't ignore that bad example. Learn from it and don't you do the same thing. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Paul there quotes from Exodus chapter 32. And you remember what that chapter records. It records how Israel, or Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And he was up there for 40 days. And the people said, we don't know what happened to Moses. We've got to take matters into our own hands. And they made a golden calf, an idol, to worship it. And they're doing this while right next to them on the mountain is the pillar of God. And they say, we need to see something. We need to worship something we can get our hands on. And they made a golden calf. Paul says, don't be idolaters like them. And it's interesting that this is the portion of that chapter that he quotes. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. There were plenty of verses in that chapter that Paul could have grabbed onto to demonstrate that this was idolatry that the people were doing. But he picks the one verse that says they ate and drank. Why did he pick that verse out of Deuteronomy 32, or Exodus 32? Well, what's the problem with the Corinthians? What has he been addressing with them throughout these three chapters? He's addressing their willingness to eat and drink in pagan temples. So he's wanting them to see that they are on far more dangerous ground than they realize. He's saying, this is what the Israelites did. Don't follow them. Back in, in the time of Exodus, God was not going to allow the Israelites to feast before a golden calf and eat his manna, and drink his water. He wasn't going to let them do the, the, both of those things at the same time. So what makes these Corinthians believe that this same God, this same Christ, is going to be just fine 
with them partaking of the Lord's Supper on a Sunday and then on a Friday evening going to an idol's temple and worship, or partaking of a meal there as a form of worship. Paul doesn't want them to be unaware. And the question for you and I is, are we attempting to worship Jesus and idols? Whatever takes precedence over Jesus Christ in my life is an idol. Whatever I am willing to disobey Christ for, that's an idol. What is it for you? Is it your family? Is it your career? Is it your free time? Is it your belly? Is it your television? Is it your phone? Don't be deceived. God is not going to tolerate me trying to divide my loyalties between him and something else. Our God is a jealous God. Paul goes on in verse 8. Nor let us act in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. You can read all about that in Numbers chapter 25. Now, was this a problem with the Corinthians? Were they falling or close to falling into sexual immorality? Well, yes, we saw that in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And Paul's saying to them, watch out. What are you doing? Are you unfaithful to your spouse in how you use your body or in what you think about? Watch out. Do you covet other men's wives or other women's husbands? Watch out. Do you use other people's bodies for your own gratification, either in person or through a computer screen? Watch out. God is not mocked. Verse 9, Paul says, Nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them did. And what happened to them when they put him to the test? They were destroyed by the serpents. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites were not going to escape the consequences of putting Christ to the test then. So what makes these Corinthians and us think that we can escape such consequences by putting Christ to the test now? Christ is revealed more fully to us now than he was then. So what makes us think that we will be less accountable now than they were then? Is that not what the book of Hebrews was all about? Verse 10, he says, Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. My Hebrew professor in seminary, he would read a passage like this, and then he would ask us ironically, Complaining isn't so bad, right? Why is grumbling such a great offense to God? It's because it betrays, it reveals our utter lack of trust in him and his sovereign care over our lives. He gives us trials because it's good for us. And when we grumble, we are taking it and we're throwing it right back in his face and saying, I don't trust you. You're doing bad by sending this into my life. The Israelites who grumbled were destroyed by the destroyer. It's interesting that the destroyer is not mentioned as such in the narrative of the wilderness wanderings. You don't find the destroyer 
specifically named as such. Where you do see him is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. And in Exodus 12, verse 23, what was the destroyer doing? He was slaying the firstborn of Egypt. And Paul is telling us that this destroyer came and he slew the grumbling Israelites. That's what God said. If you don't believe me, if you don't obey me, the plagues that came on Egypt, they're going to come on you. That's what he warned them. So if our lives are dominated by grumbling and complaining, that means that our life is dominated by unbelief in God who provides for every need. And Paul's saying, don't be ignorant. Verse 11, Paul says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. It's very much what he's saying here. The Old Testament matters. There's a teacher named Andy Stanley, and he said we have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And Paul is saying, that is foolish talk. The Old Testament matters a lot. Why? Because the same God who is at work in the Old Testament and whom the saints of past ages worshipped then is the very same God we worship now. We cannot know our God as we ought to know him if we don't look at who he revealed himself to be in the Old Testament. Just like you can't know him if you ignore the New Testament. We have to take the whole thing into consideration. And the Corinthians were not taking their Bibles seriously enough. They weren't looking at how God interacted with his people in the past. And so they were clueless about the dangerous position they were placing themselves in and how God might interact with them today. Paul is saying these things were written for your instruction, your admonishment, you upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. You and I are in the final stage of history. All of the ages that have gone on before us find their culmination in the age in which we are now living. They're all heading to that point. We are the tip of that arrow that points to the coming kingdom of God. We are on the very end of that timeline. Jesus has accomplished redemption for his people, and he's coming back with his kingdom. And if ever we needed an instruction manual for how to live, it's right now. And praise God, he's given us the manual, and the manual includes the Old Testament. We have it in black and white in our hands. Many of us have several copies at home, and we are without excuse for being unaware. We have no excuse for dallying in things that belong to our old way of life. Idolatries and immoralities that we profess to have forsaken for the sake of Christ, but that we can crave and slip right back into 
if we don't take care to keep believing to the end, to exercise self-control in all things. That brings us to our third truth, which we find in verses 12 through 13, and it's heeding prevents falling. Heeding prevents falling. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. He says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their selfish self-satisfaction, for their prideful confidence in their loveless knowledge that they were misapplying and assuming gave them permission to continue dining in pagan temples. And their pride has led them to blindly dance on the edge of a cliff, and they don't even know it. And Paul is bringing up Israel's history, and through their history is telling them, look where you're dancing. When you realize you're on the edge of the cliff, what do you do? You take a step back. But first you need to realize where you are. And Paul is telling them where they are. In verses 14 to 22, Paul is going to tell them to step back from the edge by forsaking their practice of participating in cultic meals in pagan temples to ditch this holdover from their former lives before they knew Christ as the one true Lord of all. And that's probably going to be a very hard thing for them to do. That's not going to be easy. One commentator said, quote, withdrawing from all idolatrous functions would scuttle any ambitions for social advancement, impair patron-client relations, fuel ostracism, and damage economic partnerships, unquote. For the Corinthians, turning away from participating in these social events, it could cost them friendships, it could cost them intimate family relationships, it could cost them dreams of a better life in this world, it could cost them career opportunities, and so on. This is not so very different from what our Lord calls us to do today. Maybe it's abstaining from going to that work drinking party at the bar during happy hour. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with that family member who you know will disown you the moment the name of Christ comes out of your mouth. Maybe it's refusing to go along with hanging up that gay pride flag outside of your shop. Maybe it's refusing to lie for your supervisor. Whatever it might be, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. He says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have worked out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter's saying, You've already had your fill of that. You have treasured Christ more than that, you've left that behind. And in all this, he says, they, that is the people you used to run with, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And how do they respond? Maligning you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Paul understands that what he's commanding them to do with the authority of Christ is hard. He's not just waving his hands and saying, get over it suck it up. He understands it's hard. He's walked this road himself. 
He knows it's hard, which is why he says what he says in verse 13. And verse 13 helps us to understand how these great warnings in Scripture fit together with the assuring promises of Scripture. How is it that we can be warned against losing our salvation and at the same time be promised that we will never lose our salvation? We, we did a message on that a couple weeks ago, a clarification on the end of chapter 9, and you can go listen to it on the website um, if you want to get that clarification. But verse 13 here helps us to see how those two things fit together. How can I be warned and assured? Well, Paul does it right here. Verses 1 through 12, he's warning. And verse 13, there's a little bit more of warning and assurance at the same time. What does he say in verse 13? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will provide you the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. When we face those compromising situations, we often think to ourselves, there's no way I can say no to this. this is, I'm in a bad spot here. There's no way I can refuse to sin here. God will forgive me. I need to just do it. You need to understand that such a temptation is actually common to man. We think, I'm the only one in the world who's facing this dilemma. No. Every day, believers all around the world are having to face the same kinds of temptations to go along with the crowd instead of picking up our cross and following Christ. Though God is allowing you and others to face those kinds of strong temptations, He is faithful, Paul says in verse 13. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. Is God sovereign over your life or not? He is. That means that whatever temptation you're facing, even the ones that you say, I can't handle this, you are only facing that temptation because God, at the very same time, is supplying you with the way of escape. God will make a way for you to be able to bear up under that temptation. And if there is a temptation out there that you could not possibly say no to, God, by his sovereign power, will never allow that to come into your life. He will not. He's faithful. That means we don't need to fear that someday some temptation will come along that will knock me out of the race, that will steal my crown. If there's a temptation out there that would do that, God won't let that come. What's the practical ramifications of this? What this means is that when you face that temptation, when you face that choice to either compromise your faith in Christ or remain true to Christ, you can be assured that God is only allowing you to face that temptation because at the very same moment, he's supplying you with everything you need to say no to sin and yes to God. If somebody sets down a thousand-pound boulder in front of me and says, Josh, pick that up, I'm not even going to try because I know I can't pick that up. But if I'm sitting in a forklift and someone puts that same boulder in front of me and says, pick it up, with confidence, I'm going to drive up and pick it up. 
And that's how it is with temptation in our own strength. I can't possibly say no to this thing. Or I can't possibly step out in faith and obey God in this area. But when we know that the sovereign God who is in our life is supplying everything we need, we can with confidence step up and trust that God will give us the strength to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. That encourages us to keep believing in the end, to the end because we know that every step of the way, God is there supplying everything we need to do what's hard. So let's keep persevering in our faith. And we have plenty of other promises in Scripture that say if we've truly been born again, if we're true believers, we will. We will persevere because God is faithful. Let's pray.